0: This is Coffee and Cardiology. In this podcast, we sit down with a faculty from the University of Washington Division of Cardiology to discuss the very latest in diagnostics, therapeutics, and as a special bonus, we ask what makes our cardiologists tick.
1: Yes. Thank you again for joining us today. Oh, it's a pleasure. Perfect, Dr. Patrick. Right.
0: Uh, Dr. Linker, it is wonderful to have you here indeed. And one of the reasons I think that is particularly interesting is that you have a particularly interesting background. You have combined two what many people would think of as very distinct fields, but you put them together marvelously. Could you tell us a little about that?
2: You're very kind. You're very kind. Uh, So I think that it's unusual to get into engineering the way I did, which was actually by accident. Uh, so when I was in college, I was a physics nerd, but then I decided I didn't want to do particle physics throughout my life, and that's when I switched to biology, and then biology left led to medicine. When I was in my cardiology fellowship, then I was able, the fellowship program allowed me to sign up for courses at the UW. And when I started taking those courses, then they were mostly in engineering. And somebody said, well, gee, you should see what it takes to get a master's in bioengineering with the courses you're going to take. So it turned out that taking exactly the courses I wanted to take and then writing up my, my research as a thesis I would get a bioengineering degree. So I ended up with a bioengineering degree. But it also is some of the physics and the engineering gives you a different perspective on things. It is a different way of, it's a sort of a can-do attitude. And also meant that when I was talking to engineers, I can say, I'm an engineer. And what I've discovered over the time doing that, working on various projects, for example, I was the project engineer for one of the earliest intravascular ultrasound machines in the world. And as we were working on that, then the engineers told me, oh, by the way, we've been thinking about it, and we realized that the calibrations are always going to be wrong by a different amount at every magnification. And I said, that, as a clinician, really rubs me the wrong way. That You're going to have to explain to me how that is and i that they said oh well we've been working on it for two days and we know this is right and you know we're kind of offended that you're even che- questioning this but i said just humor me let's go through it and we went through it and it turned out that they were absolutely right based on the assumptions they had and they'd made three assumptions i won't go through them but it turns out one of the assumptions was completely unnecessary and when you remove that Assumption, it was possible to have it calibrated correctly in all magnifications. <laughs> and they said, oh, you're right. <laughs> and so I think that was an example of how having the engineering background, the willingness to delve into the details and say a, a sort of can-do attitude, combined with the clinical perspective of saying, there has to be a way of having this be right, and with, we don't, aren't always on shifting sands, was very important. But anyway, so it's, it's, it, I think that that, can, the, that kind of approach is very valuable in terms of understanding what we do as clinicians and how the technology uh, impacts how we do things and how we perceive things. But but your history
0: in particularly cardiac imaging goes back a long way. Yes. And <laughs> not just intravascular ultrasound, but, but many other things. And you have worked with many different people in the development, particularly of ultrasound imaging over a long period of time. Could you give us some reflections on that history?
2: Oh, my goodness. So... Uh... Probably the biggest, I started with intravascular ultrasound here at the University of Washington under the tutelage of Dr. Alan Perlman, uh, the uh, the illustrious uh, uh, echocardiographer, and then uh, spent some time at Stanford with Rich Popp and English Nitger, and learned quite a bit there. And with a surprising connection, I was actually just asking at various meetings about Doppler techniques and I had questions that couldn't be answered by some of the engineers and they referred me to an engineer who was there who was named Bjorn Angelson who is one of the preeminent engineers in Doppler echocardiography and quantitative Doppler and after we've been talking, he said, "Wow, most cardiologists don't have this knowledge of of what's going on in in in, in echocardiography." Uh, and we got to talking, and he said, "If you're ever over in Europe, why don't you come, you know, stop by?" And so I was going to a conference uh, a few months later in in Germany, and I so this was the, the days before the internet and. But just beginning fax machines. So I called up and said, I'm going to be in Europe. You know, should I visit? And he said, sure, we'll pay your way and we can stay with, stay here and maybe you can give some lectures. And so I came up, I went to Trondheim, Norway, where, they, where he was and gave a series of lectures there. And on the last night before I was going to leave, then he had me meet with the uh, chairman of bioengineering and they offered me a job. <laughs> <laughs> and I was just finishing my fellowship, my second fellowship in, in pediatric cardiology after adult cardiology. Hadn't quite figured out what I was going to do. And here was the, one of the premier places in the entire world for, for cardiac echo offering me a job. I thought I was single. I thought I got to take a, take a chance. And so I went there and was there for six and a half years. So then how did that lead into where you're at today? What, what was that journey like? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> well, so while I was there, then I had the opportunity to work on a lot of quantitative Doppler, some of the earliest quantitative Doppler, uh, color Doppler analysis techniques, and uh, software, uh, EchoDisp, which was developed at that time, uh, that I helped develop. Uh, we also got the contract to make one of the first... Intravascular Ultrasound Machines And I was the engineering project leader for that And we did all sorts of other interesting projects Uh, After that, then I was offered a position At the Thorax Center in the Rotterdam Which is one of the major cardiology centers in in Europe And I was the the head of the ECHO lab there for two years And then I decided to come back to the United States And came, came back to the University of Washington
1: How how has that differed your experience either building or developing products, being a part of the engineering aspect, dealing with the FDA versus the European model? Is there any difference or things that you've
2: taken from that experience? Oh, there are huge differences, uh, very different cultural differences between Europe and the United States. Uh, It's actually much easier in Europe than the United States. In the the model in the United States is much more money oriented and uh, and sort of corporate, whereas there's a, a much easier collaboration between academia and 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 business uh, development in Europe.
0: So you um, you've had some interesting experiences while you're in Europe too. You managed oh, yeah. to uh, pick up a few languages in addition to English.
2: Well, well, I al- I already. Well, so prior to going to, to uh, Europe, I already spoke f- four languages, and so then I learned Norwegian when I was in Norway, and then I learned Dutch when I was in the Netherlands. And, <laughs> and what four did you start out with again? So I, I grew up with two, English and Icelandic, because my mother is Icelandic, and I was actually born in Iceland and moved to the United States when I was six six months uh, weeks old. Uh, and then grew up speaking Icelandic with her, and I still speak Icelandic with her. And then I learned Spanish in in school and French in school, and I just didn't lose. I didn't forget them like most people do. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so you actually were were called upon to give some lectures uh, in Europe as well in these new adopted languages.
2: Oh, absolutely, yeah, and and so I I have. Given lectures in all of those languages, except for spanish
0: yeah it you know it's interesting that the ways that echo in particular has developed over the years mm-hmm. and at multiple different sites all over the world. it's not like it's been one place that everything developed, but mm-hmm. really it's been it's been i think one of the true collaborative, not just collaborative between institutions but obviously bioengineering and also mm-hmm
2: clinical medicine. And it seems like, I would say, one of the great successes in medicine. I I would absolutely say so. I agree. Uh, When I started in cardiology, then there was a saying that the way you learned physiology was in the cath lab. That's where you learned physiology. That is no longer true. The place where the fellows learn physiology is in the echo lab. And that is a huge change. And similarly, when I, I did pediatric cardiology as well. And I would lecture when I was in Norway, I spoke quite a bit to the, the parent association for children with congenital heart disease. And one of the things I talked to them about was what a tremendous impact echocardiography had in pediatric cardiology. And one of them is that when I was in fellowship, then the only way to diagnose a newborn baby with a heart defect was to take them to the cath lab. And a diagnostic cath on a sick newborn had a mortality of 1%. Now, that does that's 1%, but still, you have a newborn baby, and i you're taking them to the cath lab for a diagnostic procedure, which has a 1% mortality. And I said, it, think about... The, the emotional distress for the family. Emotional distress for the doctor. I'm going to be, be doing a diagnostic procedure that may kill the patient. And then con- contrast that with doing an echocardiogram where the baby sits in their parent's lap or in an incubator and you have some gel on their chest Zero percent mortality, zero percent <laughs> morbidity. That's that is a technological revolution of the of the first sort.
0: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And you know, it's just great to have that perspective on yeah. it too, that yeah. the patient-centered, the parent centered perspective that I think we, we definitely yeah. don't always consider, especially if we're very technically oriented.
2: Well, and the other thing was that there was a, a movement in, Europe, in uh, Norway at the time where people were arguing against ultrasound for fetal ultrasound because they said, oh, well, this is technology getting in the way of the maternal fetal bond, and, and it's technology getting in the way of the human bond. And I said, really? Uh, you know, it's a, tele- a stethoscope is technology but it doesn't get away from the human bond between the patient and 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 the uh, and the the doctor it's a different type of bond but it's still a human bond and it's it's as 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 impersonal as you choose to make it but it can mm. be very very personal and 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 human
0: that that is a really good point you and know, we've talked before about the sonographer patient bond in particular and the ways that that putting patients at ease, um, not freaking out if you see something really <laughs> abnormal, you know, and on all of the different things, it can be very, very intimate uh, type of
2: conne- human connection. Well, I, I agree with you completely. And I have to say, just a plug, I, I've i worked at a lot of different places, and I, I think we have excellent sonographers. And I frequently get comments from patients about, how much they like the sonographer and how comfortable the son- sonographer made them ma- feel. And I think that's a very important part of the of the interaction. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I'm very glad to hear you say yeah. that. That's yeah. Funny. Yeah. Well, <laughs> you know, go for it. Uh, you recently published
1: a book as well High Quality Transesophageal Echocardiography. I'm curious in how that plays into the future of education and training and also maybe what the future of echo looks like to you in your perspective well i,
2: th- I think it's not just echo it's just what we do mm. and so and this is a maybe a little bit ph- philosophical but i think of at- mastery as not a goal but an aspirational goal it's not something that you achieve it's something you aspire to and If you're going to aspire towards mastery, it means being always humble, always curious, always being willing to learn from everybody, willing to think about how can I make this things this better. And doing procedures can be very complex. It's like whether it's it's learning a musical instrument, whether riding a bicycle or a, a sport, there are all sorts of complexities and you can become skilled at it without mastering it. And if you aspire towards mastery, then you want to take every part of it and say, how can I make this better? And then you take each part and you, how, do, how can I make this better? Who can teach me something that can make this better? And then how can I take all of those pieces and put them back together? And make it even better, and then I'll start it all over again. So, doing a procedure like transesophageal echocardiography can be very overwhelming for a trainee because there's just a huge that the uh, amount of material that they need to be thinking about and uh, paying attention to. There are the there's the mechanical. Uh, coordination of doing things, there's the physics of ultrasound, there's the pathology that they're trying to to, um, interrogate, there's the anatomy. All of that can be overwhelming. And I discovered that there was not any book that talked about the procedure itself. There were lots of books that talked about how you can use this, how you can interpret the images, but not how do you actually do it and so the approach of the book is, on the one hand, trying, aiming towards aspiration of, goal, of mastery, but at the same time, breaking it out into very small pieces. And that actually is in keeping with thoughts in the educational sphere about reducing the cognitive load, that if you give a, a learner too much at all, all at once, then it's extremely hard for them to remember anything. And so you give them little bite-sized pieces that they can build on. So the book is designed that way, where there are little bite-sized pieces that 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 you can build on, and then you put them t- together into a whole. And I'm creating a, so that's the book, and then the I'm also creating an online course for trainees in cardiology, where they will use the same using the same principles. It's a sort of a. Uh, Light size of, of of the book. It's it, it's not the, all of the detail in the book, but just the, the critical points. And so the idea is that they'll have small uh, lessons that they can do in just five minutes. If they got a f- five minutes here, five minutes there, and but they build on each other so that no time will be they be overloaded with information. So the idea is so that they will be more comfortable. And in uh, I'm. Assembling what I call a consortium of different training uh, uh, training programs, where they are have expressed an interest in trying this out with their fellows, and we can see how this improves their feelings of self efficacy in 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 training, which is important for tra- for for learners. Well, I've been talking a lot, so. <laughs>
0: Well, I, I just want to point out. I thank you very much for letting me read some of the chapters in oh, advance. That was very, very nice th- th- for you. And thank I you. just
2: thank you for your comments. Uh, they were very helpful.
0: Well, one one comment I would make now is this is a very unique book because I have never seen anywhere, particularly in relation to transesophageal echo, in which it's explained why you do what you do. Mm-hmm. Not just the physics of ultrasound, but the actual physics or hardware of the transducer, mm-hmm. how it's designed, how it works. And I, I realized that after reading that, I'm like, this is why I do what I do. Mm-hmm. But I had never really understood it until that point. So I really appreciate that about this book.
2: That's wonderful. Thank you so much for that comment. And I, actually, literally just yesterday, I was doing a transesophageal echo with a fellow who said, I really like doing TEEs with you, Dr. Linker, because you tell me why I should do things, not just what I should do.
0: <laughs> yeah yeah you know, and this i I think just getting back to the educational issue here, clearly bite size that is the new way to go. It recognizes the the cognitive overload that happens, but I think for a long time people have recognized it's so much easier to mat to aspire to master something if you understand the why, not mm-hmm. just memorizing mm-hmm. things
2: absolutely, absolutely. You, I think this is important It's
1: interesting. I think you've tapped into something as you know, maybe a generational thing, but also I think just a human nature thing that you've broken it down in these bite-sized pieces. That it seems like it comes naturally to you as an engineer of understanding all the pieces play by play. But I, was that an interpretation of how you've seen education evolve and and need for that bite-sizedness, or is it? Kind of understanding kind of your students and how they've provided feedback to you, how, how did you come with up with this
2: idea and modality? So this is p- part of my aspirational goal is to become better and better. <laughs> and I, I have had to learn this. So quite, uh, quite uh, directly, the whole idea of cognitive load, I just learned from one of our fellows. We had a fellow who just graduated last year who had an educational background and gave a grand rounds that was eye-opening for me, which where she talked about cognitive load in learning. I thought, wow, I had never thought of that. I need to incorporate that into my teaching. And then I started thinking about, hmm, I'm thinking about writing a book. Maybe I should incorporate that into the book. And and in fact, that was something that was a, a concept I just learned less than five years ago, and so this is always learning, always curious, always humble. Wherever you can find something. No, <laughs> oh, no question.
0: Well, I, I want to uh, switch gears a little bit and talk about detection of atrial fibrillation, a yes. hot topic. Mm-hmm. right now um especially with all of of the emphasis we are putting on new technologies that might actually uh help us with this but you've been in this space for quite a while
2: yes so that, that, that it's kind of a funny story how that started we had a a one of our uh electrophysiologists dr robert Rowe, who's who's now in private practice came to me and said uh, well you know I think that'd be really useful to de- automatically detect atrial fibrillation to find people who have atrial fibrillation but don't know it. Uh, it any anybody I can talk to in bioengineering who you know uh, are there some algorithms? So I did a little searching and I thought there are probably a lot of al- algorithms out there, and it turned out that there were a lot of automated algorithms. The problem is that all of them were sensitive which means that if you have atrial fibrillation, they will detect that you have atrial fibrillation, a sensitivity better than 95%. They were also not very specific. So if you didn't have atrial fibrillation, there'd be anywhere from a 15% to a 25% chance that they said you have atrial fibrillation when you didn't have it. So if you're going to do this for screening, it would be close to useless because you'd have to be flooded with all these people who didn't have atrial fibrillation. And so I thought, this is, this is kind of weird. And I, I told him that. And I also, there wasn't anybody in bioengineering who was working on that. And so I just started playing around. And within just a few months of playing around just as a hobby project, I had come up with an algorithm that seemed to be better than anything out there. And then I, over the next couple years, I tweaked it and tweaked it and tweaked it, so it was as sensitive as anything out there, but dramatically more specific, so that it would be useful. And so that's that's sort of the. I ended up patenting those algorithms, and right now that it's a long story about the the, the whole evolution of that. But my right now, I'm quite interested in making it uh, public domain. And actually, making it more available. And the way the question is, how do you apply that? So, if you have a Holter monitor, then it's kind of expensive, and often disposable, which makes it even more expensive. And that means it's commercial, and all it gets 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 kind of complicated. And then that's mainly for. Europe and North America, what happens with the rest of the world? And so I started thinking about that, and I thought, okay, if I were going to design something that will work everywhere, how can I make it really low cost? And there are several ideas, but the one that I'm most intrigued by now is using something that basically costs nothing. Nothing is good. (laughs) And the way you do that is using a smartphone camera as a pulse oximeter, uh, just for looking at the pulse. And so most recently, I worked with some bioengineering uh, undergrads who, as their capstone, helped me write a prototype uh, app for both Android and iOS that will use those algorithms to measure your pulse on a smartphone app. And so that then that can be distributed at no cost, and then you can use the algorithms that I've developed to help screen for atrial fibrillation. Now, many of the, the listeners will know this because they're in, in the medical field, but those who are not in the medical field, the problem with, with asymptomatic atrial fibrillation, well, atrial fibrillation is the most common heart rhythm disturbance that we have to treat. People can have it without knowing it. And the problem is that if you have it and don't know it, there is a risk of stroke. And there, there are complicated algorithms to figure out who is the highest risk. of. Not everybody's at risk, but if you are at risk for stroke and have it, then you should be treated. And if you're treated, you can reduce that risk by over 80%. So the question is, how when you have people who are at risk, how can you screen to find out if they have atrial fibrillation? And there, the problem is always how much does it cost. So how can we make that cost to go to zero? And that's my my sort of passion, <laughs> and you, using the the, the uh, smartphone app.
1: So it, it sounds like the future is. Of all of this is accessibility through technology, not necessarily building new technology. Right.
2: Mm -hmm. Well, well, it's ideally doing it with existing technology rather than making new technologies. I I actually have three different avenues for using the algorithm, one of which requires totally new technology. Another one requires another new technology. And this is the one where there is no new technology that's necessary. So it's the least expensive. That's fabulous. I'm sure um, the industry's really excited. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and it will be non, uh, non-commercial by design. Oh, yeah. They'll, they'll be coming after you.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: <laughs> we uh, we had Wayne Levy on earlier and mm. uh, got his perspectives on the Seattle Heart Failure model. And I just wanted to get your perspectives on it as well as, as the programmer. Uh,
2: oh, well. That has been such a productive collaboration It's been such over over literally decades uh and it's been so wonderful to work with, with with Wayne. He's a fantastic and innovative collaborator uh the the i The story of that was that he had developed the the concept and the algorithm, and he sent out an email to all the faculty members. With a spreadsheet, and he said, oh, "This is what I've been working on." I interested in some comments before I publish it, and I looked at it, and I had two two responses. One, this is very cool. I can really see how this will help patient care and education, and and this is this is really really cool. I really like this. The other is. This is completely unusable. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody is going to use it like this. and And so I sort of reverse engineered his spreadsheet, figured out the algorithm, and I created a little web app to calculate the 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 algorithm, and put it on a little secure site <coughs> on a, on a web server on 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 a campus web server. And wrote him an email back and I said, I think this is really cool. I think it's really useful. Uh, I wonder, what do you think about presenting it this way as a web app calculator? And he was so excited. (laughs) And and we've had a wonderful collaboration ever since then. Uh, One aspect of of the collaboration is that when we made the initial site, before we went online, then the question was, are we going to charge for this? And, you know, the, the, the model that the commercialization people said is, let's pay charge for this. Let's have, you know, a, a pay portal that you have to log in. And we talked about that. That was, the, that was their preferred model. And uh, I didn't like that because I, I did some real soul searching about why, why do I want to be involved in this? What, what is my goal? And it was not to make money. I really wanted to improve patient care and I thought this would be a tool to improve patient care. Whenever you put up a paywall, that is a barrier that would would limit somebody from accessing that. So that would not meet my main goal. So I talked to Wayne about it and I said, you know, I, I really think that I don't like the idea of, of people paying for this. But then the other thing was that, well, let's, see a comp- let's say a company started using it and they're using it for their sales force. That's not my goal. I think they should pay for that. <laughs> and so we talked to the people about uh, the, uh, the commercialization office and said, can we make something where if you are a clinician, a, or a provider and you're using this to take care of your for your patients we give you a free license and everybody else you need to talk to us about licensing fees they said well we haven't done that before but we can try that and so that's that's what we ended up doing and I have to say that that has brought me so much pleasure and also we've gotten some licensing fees <laughs> <laughs> we've actually gotten con- companies who have licensed it and so there has been money that has come in But having, being able to talk to providers and say, hey, you can use this for free. Use this now. Uh, We had some people who were going to do some research in Africa and they wanted to know what they needed to do to license it for using it to care for people. They said, nothing. If you're going to be using it to care for people, it's for free. You can use it now. I gave a lecture in Vietnam about this, and I explained all of this, and I was able at the end, end of the, the lecture to say, you can access this after this lecture immediately to take care of your patients, and it costs you nothing. That uh, every time I look at the website statistics and see all the downloads in all throughout the world, it makes me happy. <laughs> <laughs>
1: So again, this sounds like a kind of a a conflict, though. If you have these, yeah, whether it's um, you know the the students that you're teaching, especially kind of going into this field as entrepreneurs or trying to build new technologies, is there a conflict between I think what you really see and and it's kind of rooted in some of these things that you've built, democratizing that technology or access to healthcare. Versus the capitalistic kind of pull. Of
2: that education. Oh, that's, a, that's a very insightful question. Uh, the, there is. I think it's a cultural. Uh, dichotomy. It's not a real dichotomy. Mm-hmm. Because if somebody wants to commercialize something. Sure. Uh, you know even. Uh, th- that's, that's not a real problem. It's a cr- problem if you. The commercialization prevents adoption. So, as an example, when with the Seattle Heart Failure model, uh, we, we had one company that licensed a version for the Palm that was was branded for them, and they would be able that would have their logo on it. I had no problem with that. They paid us money for that, but I thought this is wonderful because people can go to the website and they can get that same thing without the branding for free. To, 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 but then because they had a branded version their sales reps were virally distributing it even to even other more people who other people who have not have gotten it so it was increasing the adoption rather than decreasing it by saying it's proprietary right. so you can make it so it's it's the best of both worlds but if you say oh you can only get the branded version and you can only get it if you buy something from us then that's a, that's a problem
0: that's a, that's a great model that you guys have put together, and I, I wish more people did it. Um, I want to get back to your origins, as it were, um, because, you know, we have been talking about some absolutely fascinating things, and you have had a long, varied, and storied career, but your uh, sort of public career started much earlier than your medical training, and I was wondering if you could... Um, Tell us a a little bit about that. And I do want to uh, direct our listeners to the Smithsonian website, where if you put in uh, David Linker, you will come up with some very
2: interesting (laughs) findings. Well, this goes back way into (laughs) prehistory, before cable television. (laughs) Way back. (laughs) Uh, So... I was born into a family with a very unusual occupation. So uh, my father, this was even before color TV, uh, his main occupation was as a lecturer, a travel adventure lecturer. And he would go to various cities and give lectures in a, a lecture hall about his adventures around the world. In fact, he m- met my mother on one of those adventures. Um, so we would travel quite a bit. To, uh, and I, I would go along with him. The, my first trip was before I was one year old uh, around the world with with my parents as they were going to Pakistan, the Khyber Pass, and Israel, and some pretty wild stories about that. I don't remember any of it. (laughs) Um, And then he continued to do that, and in 1957 was offered an opportunity to try doing a television show, a live television show in Los Angeles for 13 weeks just as a trial. And they thought this is my, my my mother and father thought this was going to be wonderful. We'll have our tri- little uh, flash in the pan on uh, on TV, and they literally on the last night had had the script, which was you know th- been, thank you for, for inviting us into your homes and but we're this is our last episode, and somebody ra- ran in and said don't say anything about going off the, off the air. <laughs> and, and they were renewed for, I think it was a, a total of 17 years. And uh, it, into the, my father always uh, filmed in color, even when the TV was in black and white. So when color TV uh, came into, into vogue, then it was very, very popular that we had these shows that were already with color. And uh, then as cable started came out coming coming in, then it was a little bit more. Uh, there were there were f- film crews that could spend much more time than we could ever spend to to um, in, uh, in, investigate different countries. So this was this was a genre that sort of went by the wayside uh, with, with with cable. But so when I was growing up, we would travel. As soon as, as I was always in, in school in the normal school year, we never traveled during the school year. As soon as school went out, came out in uh, in uh, in June, we would literally be out of the country within a few days, and we would come back a couple of days before school started in September.
0: Wow! And and did you visit multiple countries <laughs> in one summer, or was yeah. it sort of one country yes. per summer?
2: Yeah. So we well. Th- th- Prior to the TV show, we the only time we ever did one country for the entire summer was uh, in when uh, I was around four, and we went to Japan and was in, were in Japan for the entire summer. Uh, but after you that, picked up Japan in that time. I'm sorry, Japanese. No, and we so we would generally visit maybe. Seven or ten countries, wow! uh, During the summer, and uh, but usually probably more like seven six to seven. And uh, anyway, how how do you think
1: that impacted your future trajectory? Did did you know you were going to be a
2: cardiologist
1: from the beginning?
2: Absolutely not. (laughs) (laughs) I had no idea. I mean, when I went to college, I was I was confident I was going to be a physicist. Did, was that influenced by a lot of no. what you experienced? now? <laughs>
0: <laughs> were, were you running away from it,
2: perhaps? No. I, it? Well, I, I definitely I wasn't going to be doing film and mm. in TV. That was that was not what I wanted to do. But an interesting sort of aside is my father was very very concerned about what would happen to his legacy and 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 the films that he had he had uh, made and. Uh, I remember that there prior prior to his death and he he was asked to review a, a small, much smaller film archive of somebody uh, somebody else who had done something similar and sort of to uh, assess it and and he came back and he was very very sad because you saw that this is the sort of the life had gone out of this archive and and he just wondered about his own legacy and after he died then my my mother they had this huge film archive and gave it to Cal State Northridge, their, their film program there. And they kept it for many years. And they realized that they couldn't really curate it properly. And, and they were trying to figure out what to do with it. And fortunately, they were absolutely wonderful. They contacted the Smithsonian Institution, the Human, Subjects, uh, uh, film archive, Human Studies Film Archive, and asked them if they were interested. And they were ecstatic. And they said this was the largest donation they had ever got of its life, uh, type. And when, you know, my, my mother contacted me and asked, you know, what do you think about it? I thought, this is perfect. My father would have been overjoyed. That that cannot possibly be a better choice. Because what he hoped was that it would be someplace where other people could use it for study Use it for as as stock footage, and that's exactly what's happened with the with, with it being at the Smithsonian. There's the connection. Yeah,
1: there it is. You There's knew it was coming connection. at some point. It's that accessibility to yes. what you've built. Yes, that's very cool.
0: Yeah, and it's you know I actually um, when Dr. Linker is in the lab, in in part to uh, embarrass him, I, <laughs> I show some of these to the fellows. We search it up on the Smithsonian website, and yes. And uh, you, believe me, you've done a lot of – it's very interesting. You see exploding volcanoes and and um, backdoor in the uh, the monoliths in Egypt and many other very interesting places that I'm sure not everyone had access to.
2: The, the Bamiyan Valley in Afghanistan, the the Buddhas there. And...
0: This, is, this has been tremendous. Um, you know, one of the things we really want to come out of this podcast is the richness of – varied experiences mm-hmm. and expertise that our faculty have here at the University of Washington. I think you embody that mm-hmm. perhaps more
1: than all the rest of us put you're, together. You're
2: very, you're very kind.
1: <laughs> and last note before we leave, just in terms of, uh, you know, mental health has been a theme for, for our providers. And, and what are some takeaways through your experience in ways that you've created space for your own mental health?
2: Well, fortunately I, I have to, reference my wife, that my wife and I both love the outdoors and both have a love of getting outdoors. And I like to say that the outdoors are my cathedral. Uh, That is where we both get inspiration, where we reconnect. And so making sure to make the time to get outdoors and have some physical activity, I think is very important. That's great. So if any of
0: our listeners would like to get in touch with you about your book, uh, Seattle Heart Failure Model, or what it's like to be archived in the Smithsonian, <laughs> what would be a good way to, to do that?
2: Uh, probably the best way is through my email, uh, which is D-T-L-I-N-K-E-R at UW.edu. Perfect. And excellent, and, and are you
0: actually still available to give lectures in Norwegian?
2: Oh, absolutely. <laughs>
0: <laughs> we we need to broaden our podcast uh, reach. I think, I think so. Scandinavia now go in
2: international now. Absolutely. <laughs> Although, given that I was born in Iceland and my mother is Icelandic, one thing that Norwegians don't like is I tend to point out that Leif Erikson was not Norwegian. Oh boy. He was Icelandic. Uh, that in fact, he was born around 40 years after, uh, in Iceland, about 40 years after Icelandic independence. So that's kind of like talking about the famous Englishman, Abraham Lincoln.
1: <laughs> <laughs> anyway,
2: that's excellent.
1: Well, thank you so much for the time. This has been fantastic. Really enjoyed it. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you. This podcast
0: was produced with support from the University of Washington Division of Cardiology. We have no other sponsors.